Long time no see. Absolutely, I know. It's been a spell. It's been a spell. That's right. Um, a lot has changed. A lot has changed. You had in December. Yes. It was like, there wasn't that the 42 parallel? Yeah. 42 north latitude. Yeah. 42 north latitude. But you hadn't officially joined the 42 latitude club. Right. I was temping. Exactly. Van lifing. Exactly. Hashtag van life. Uh, uh, you called it van life. I was calling it trailer trash. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thanks. <laughs> but now you're finally, and I know you've been hot at doing a lot of renovations, a lot of moving in and stuff. And so we needed to take this time to just let you get settled. Nothing's been going on in your world either, but oh my God. Yeah. Moving is the absolute worst and breaking your finger right before you move is actually even oh my gosh, yes. more worser. <laughs> so that sucked. And my finger still hasn't healed. Like it's been five months and my finger is still crooked and I'm kind of resigned to the fact that it's never going to get back to where it was, but I'll make do. <laughs> I told you what you need to do. What? Tell me again. The Ronnie Lott method. Which is what? So for those of you who may or may not know who Ronnie Lott is, Ronnie Lott is a football player who broke his finger and they basically said, well, we can fix the finger, but you'll be out of football for a while. And he's like, well, what is the solution? That's right. And they, it's all coming back to me now. And they said, cut it off. And he's like, okay, I'm not missing playing time. That's my choice. Must play football. I, <laughs> must swing hammer. Cut it off. Oh my gosh. Just ridiculous. <laughs> Some people are really dedicated to their craft. and apparently Some people are just aren't. tough, man. I'm just a baby, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're way more dedicated. So let's just rewind for a second. First of all, welcome and thank you everybody for being patient with us on our new welcome season, back. which is our 10th season. 10th season, 11th year. That's right. 11th Insanity. year. Yeah. Wow. It's insane. Yep. And we're absolutely glad that everybody's here. And so the reason why it's been a while since we've recorded is we're talking about Evan's moving experiences. You're only touching the tip of the iceberg. You've made trips back and forth to California. You're ripping apart your brand new house, brand new to new you to me house. house. Right. The picture you sent me, you know, it's just like, hey, we just closed. And then the next picture was you ripping walls down to the studs and... And yeah, tearing concrete out of the basement floor to find the plumbing and all that good oh stuff. Oh my. You yeah, know, this and is... I'm, it's funny because I'm pretty sure we didn't take a break when you moved. No, we didn't. <laughs> and then when I move, it's like, we're taking three or four months off. Well, some of us moved to a house that is like, okay, it's good enough for now. You know, because funny enough, we are only, as of today's recording on the 16th of March, we are actually only two months and four days away from when I closed on the house. Jeez. So it's been almost a year since wow. I've owned this home. It took us a couple of months back and forth, back and forth. What is now coming to be one of my regrets is all of the miles that I put on my brand new truck at the time, right. which no longer is like that. But there was always a home base for me to be able to stop and record. You didn't have that. No, we moved out of our house. And I guess one of the reasons that this took so long is I didn't just move. I didn't have a house. I didn't have a place for a couple of months out of this. And we lived, I think the last time that we recorded, I was in my trailer. We were in a yes. campground up here. 
But that was when we still were deciding where we wanted to be. So we moved out of our house the day before Thanksgiving. It was my birthday. We left with the travel trailer in tow. The U-Haul boxes were about to be picked up. We actually had to leave before they even got picked up. And we were on the phone with them as they picked them up. And they're like, damn, these are heavy. <laughs> we loaded those like things to my the brim. Life is there. And we even had to have another one delivered emergency style. Like, we're not going to fit it in these five. We need a sixth one. Oh it my, was absolutely yes. incredible. And we had another trailer full of stuff that we were going to haul up later. And we had our travel trailer. And we had an extra vehicle that we had to park somewhere. We had two extra vehicles we had to park somewhere. The logistics behind this move were crazy. And we were moving a thousand miles. At least we thought we were moving a thousand miles, but we were definitely starting to drive a thousand miles to get to mm -hmm. a place where we thought we might look for a place to live because of things that happened during the sale. I don't even remember what I talked about, but our sale didn't go through. We had to relist the house. We had to resell the house. There was a whole bunch of drama in there. And so then we were like, no, we're not going to look and get attached <laughs> to anything, not knowing if it's actually going to happen, right? Because it didn't happen once. What are the chances it's not going to happen again? It's pretty high, I guess. So right, right. we drove a thousand miles and then that's the last time we recorded. And after that, I think we've been back down to California three times and it's a thousand miles each direction all three times. Actually, I think we flew down once. So. It's just been this kind of roller coaster for the past few months. We even lived in my parents' house who were not there because they were up here in Oregon as well, Pacific Northwesting. And they allowed us to stay in their house. We were there for over a month. It's just like, how did that happen? Goodness. Where did that time go? It was a beautiful time to be in the Palm Springs area. That's for sure. After that, we towed all of our stuff back up here. And then we had to go back down and move my father-in-law, who's moved in with us. We're a multi-generational family now. So there's just been so much involved in the process. It's been absolutely a tireless journey. That's for sure. Right. There are a few parallels between like my move and yours, the back and forth, but in our conversations over the past few months, you took it and just went all in. You said, hold my beer. Oh my gosh. I thought, man, I've been driving back and forth from DC to Detroit every weekend for a couple of months, mm -hmm. looking at houses and things like that mm -hmm. and was doing all of that. And it was more of just like, you know, I'm exhausted. We can't seem to find anything. If we're not physically in the area, people who are here are actually getting first selection or first right to the thing. There's mm -hmm. all sorts of craziness. Yeah. So we were rotating in and out and you know, the pains of that. And so I thought we were, but no, you took it one step. We took it much further. Right. Yes, exactly. You totally did. It was something. So we needed this time to let you at least get settled. Yeah, I still don't even have a proper podcast recording area because I'm remodeling down. I'm not personally remodeling stuff downstairs. I'm doing a little bit of work on the weekends, but uh, I, I got to work still too, right? So my wife's right. got to work still too. So we're construction managing and on the weekends I'm doing framing and electrical and things that I can do. But the future podcast studio is where my father-in-law is living right now. It's the Rubik's Cube. We just have another version of the Rubik's Cube that we're solving here. Ah, dude, it's crazy. Yep. And just thinking about how this all relates to, let's bring this back. How does this relate to architecture? I was thinking about the process of selling a house and the process yeah. of the logistics of moving and all of those things and thinking like 
maybe the only reason I can actually do this is because I'm used to these kind of complex problems when it comes to architecture. <laughs> like right. I can see right. how this would, and I am not superhuman in any way, like this would break a normal person, the level of things that we had to do. This is why people don't move. This is why people have all the stuff that they have in their house and they don't, it's way too mm -hmm. difficult to do all this stuff. Like the whole realtor real estate process is insane. The financial, True. the banking, the loans, there's just so many layers to that is crazy making, right? And so I was just thinking, hey, this isn't unlike a project. You can speak right. to that right? probably even better than I can. I mean, you've been on some absolutely crazy, crazy projects. Did you ever think of it that way? Like just managing a project, like moving your family and all of these schools oh, totally. and all that stuff is not unlike an architectural <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Even in, in the pain included. <laughs> I can also say the evolution of, you know, we've moved a lot in my career. We moved a couple of times while we were still in Florida to different areas within Florida. We moved to Maryland. We moved here. But every move has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can parallel that to my career and even like my family life in my career. As it's grown, as it's evolved, as it's gotten bigger and more complex, both my experience and my family life, all of these moves have gotten that way. But with all of that experience that I built up in learning how to manage smaller projects to bigger projects to bigger projects to like these massive projects. If I hadn't gone through a lot of those, especially like this move where I thought, oh yeah, I can drive back and forth. Seriously, I think it was eight straight weekends. I drove back and forth from Detroit to DC. And it's like nine hours, right? Yeah. It's, it, you it's know, not a short a, distance. We would leave either really late on Friday night or really, really early on Saturday, get here so we could look at houses basically mid-afternoon Saturday through early morning to early afternoon on Sunday and then drive back. And that's what we would do. And just like you're saying that you aren't superhuman, it just didn't really occur to me that there was any other way. I was like, this is the way I'll handle it. This is the easiest way for me to do this, to make sure that we're getting what we want. And so I'll just, you know, we have this built-in suffering mechanism or being mm -hmm. able to deal with suffering. And I think that's what we should focus on right now in this conversation, yeah. because I totally agree that's where it is. And it's like this comfortability with chaos. Certain people in my house were losing it over the things that the realtor was telling us. And it was like, all I can do is be like, yep. And something else weird's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. like something else extremely off the wall and extremely stressful and upsetting is going to happen tomorrow. Mm. You just exactly. know it because yeah. it's been happening every day for three weeks now. What's going to make tomorrow any different? And it was like this ability to deal with suffering because in rock climbing, we often call this the suffer fest. You go on this big adventure, it's a total suffer fest and it's mm -hmm. type two fun, right? It's the kind of fun that's like not fun at all until it's yeah. over. And then you remember certain good things that happened during the process. The other memories fade away, like melt exactly. melting butter in the microwave or something. I don't know where that analogy came from. But you think about the ability to deal with that suffering, knowing that patience pays off in the end because no one else is willing to deal with this. We will benefit from that. <laughs> I don't know if architects actually ever do benefit from it, but there is this sense of benefiting in the end, like accomplishment, I guess maybe is a better word to think about it than benefiting. 
<laughs> I would say, yeah, accomplishment's good. No one else is complimenting you on it. No one else is patting you on the back. You have to do that yourself. You have to get out the self-back patting machine. Exactly. It's like that picture that's always in the newspaper of a groundbreaking. And it's everybody who's not actually involved with the project or the process that's in the picture. That is the ceremony of the uninvolved. That's kind of the thing. It's just like, okay, well, we're not going to get recognized for this project that they're talking about in the paper. We'll just recognize ourselves. Right. (laughs) Or we'll pat ourselves on the back. We won't even celebrate, though. That's the Uh, funny thing. It's just like, what's next? Here's that $15 Starbucks card. Thanks for doing all those oniders. All right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What's what's next? What do we got now? What's the next project? Yeah. So here's a self-congratulatory of like our move was just sitting on the couch, families all around, wife looks at me and she's like, God, I love our house. And that's it. After all of when you were talking about conveniently forgetting the pain and torture of the process, you come off the mountain and your body is aching and you like huffing and puffing and all of that other stuff. I'm just thinking about my last night. I could barely walk. I could barely breathe. Knees are aching, your ankles swollen. Yeah. Sweat soaked. I did such a quick descent off of the Appalachian Trail, and it was quite an elevation change. And I was so lightheaded, just so disoriented. And none of that, I mean, I can look back and remember all of that, but none of that was part of the thing. Every time I sit and talk with the guys that I was on the hike with, we talked finally about, oh, did you remember this? Or, oh, did you look at that? It's all of the things that, it wasn't the torture It's the Instagram pictures. That's all you remember. There you go. The good stuff. It's like, this is what hiking's like. It's amazing. The views, the weather. And what you can't see is like the 60 mile an hour winds and the slipping down the scree slope and twisting your ankle. And like your lunch was soggy in the bottom of your backpack. And none of that mm-hmm. conveniently makes it onto Instagram. Me learning what an IT band is because it <laughs> right. never heard of such a thing on the human body There is body a point before. in your life when all of a sudden you learn about IT bands. It's true. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have never in my life felt so much pain in my legs before. And they're just like, oh, here's the way you get stretched out. It's just like, shut up. It's just a nice way of saying you're old. Yeah. It, pretty much, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting to draw the line between these two suffer fests of architecture and moving. But I've had some interesting challenges on the current project that I'm on. And I've talked with people in our office and everything else. And we talked about all these interesting challenges we've had, we'll call it that. And I was, and I told them, you know, in my stage of my career, in all of the things that I've gone through, all of the past challenges and trials and tribulations throughout different projects and different ways that We've interacted with clients or the way that certain clients treat you and stuff like that. If it wasn't for all of that, I wouldn't have been able to handle the complexity of this particular project, which is an international project, doing things in metric when I've spent my entire career in Imperial and all of these different little challenges that I faced. And it's only because of all of the experience, all of the other suffer fests that I've had that's been able to get me through all of the current and potentially future sufferfests. We know that they're not going to go away. Actually, that's what I wrote down. My note is like just not freaking out about stuff. Stay as level-headed as you possibly can. I don't know how many times during the process of moving, I said, just relax. Everything will mm-hmm. be fine. Everything will mm-hmm. work out. It knows. I was just like, just breathe. It, it is like meditation. Yeah. 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 <laughs> just just let these things pass through you and just observe them. Don't react to them. Yeah, exactly. I told 
my wife. Don't get too invested in any of the houses that we look at and any of the houses that we place offers on until it gets accepted, until it actually goes through. Because we had one that was accepted and yeah. ultimately it fell through. And I was just like, until we sign the papers, don't get invested in anything. It didn't feel real until what point? Even us, we weren't even sure we were going to get the keys. It just gets so far down to the wire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That you just never believe that it's going to actually happen because so many things can go wrong in the process. Even after it happened, though, my, my wife was just like, it just still doesn't feel real. <laughs> yeah. And what made it feel real for us is when, you know, we closed on the house and then it was still technically about two months before we really got all of our stuff to the house. And so at least that night, we all slept on the floor in the house just to kind of like say, okay, it's ours now. And hardwood floors, very, very uncomfortable, woke up in pain. But you know what? It was okay because it was it ours. It was your pain. It was our pain. <laughs> it was our pain caused by our house. Right. That's so funny. We got our keys to the house and we still lived in our trailer for two more nights because we had zero things here. Yeah, <laughs> It was yeah. way more comfortable to sleep in the trailer and to cook in the trailer because we had stuff there than it was to be in the house with absolutely nothing. Have you ripped out your kitchen yet? <laughs> not looking forward to that. That will happen at some point. We're thinking about how that's going to work, but we're not committing Just to anything for at least a year. <laughs> as I told my wife, we own this now. We can pace ourselves. We don't have to do everything overnight. She wanted to like, let's update this bathroom. It's been a fine working bathroom since 1941. Before you know it, that 10 years will pass and you'll be like, how come we haven't done anything? Hey, I uh, know how it goes. That fancy speckled pink tile. Nice. Yeah. It's beautiful stuff. My house uh, was built and decorated in 1980. <laughs> it never changed since then. The interesting thing about ours is it's 1941 house and it, were people just shorter because like the bathrooms? Some of us still are, Cormac. Yeah. Some of you are. So you would have been fine in my bathroom. It's just like when I'm sitting there enjoying a respite and like, why are my knees hitting the tub? Yeah. Kind of small, huh? Kind of small. Well, go back in time and think about the cars of that time. They were enormous. Isn't it weird how different those things are from each other? Can you just imagine how these little people who were living in these little houses were in these big cars just like bouncing around as they're like turning yeah. the corner and floating, floating, rolling around like a weeble wobble. <laughs> hey, I've got a topic switch for you here. I was enamored with your text message to me the other day. He said, this is engineering birth control. <laughs> I want you to tell this story about what you've been witnessing. Oh, so another year, another ACE program. And now I'm in a different ACE now, obviously with ACE Detroit, not ACE Baltimore. Can you just say what ACE is real quick? Not everybody knows that you're not talking about the hardware store right now. So True. ACE is the Architecture, Construction, and Engineering Mentoring Program. And basically, it gives high school students from freshman to senior an opportunity, if they're interested in the AEC industry, kind of a peek into what the industry is. And they always do it based on doing a project. It's usually a hypothetical project, but a lot of times it's rooted in one of the mentors or one of the board of directors of that particular ACE program says, hey, we just finished up this project. It might be something good for the kids to do a group project based around this kind of thing. And this one is really, really interesting. And I'll talk more about it in maybe a future episode because I definitely want to talk about this amazing architect, Nathan Johnson, who 
just a Detroit legend, you know, so we'll talk a little bit more about that. A little teaser for you right there, folks. What's interesting about this one is it's two days a week instead of one day a week like ours was. Ours in Baltimore was a little bit longer for that one day. We would do a little bit of a lecture and then a lot of kind of like studio work. Let's just call it that. And here they separate it. They do Monday, two hours of lecture, Wednesday, two hours of kind of studio work, hands-on with the mentors. So the project that they're working on, it's a really interesting project, but we have these lectures and these lectures are interesting. They're informative. They are experience packed, but they are way over the head of these kids and mandatory that the lectures are virtual. And then we meet in person, which by the way, another side note is I'll talk a little bit further about this local university here called Lawrence Tech, which is amazing. Most people have never heard of it, but the premise behind it and everything else is just incredible. But it's a <laughs> side note. <laughs> Teaser number two. So everybody has to keep their camera on. And so I'm just watching the look on the kids' faces as they're talking. Now they're frantically taking down notes and things like that. And because they're periodically, they'll stop and they'll ask questions. It's just like, okay, what makes up concrete? And it's like that. Those are the easy ones. But then, but we just recently had one, which was MEP, which was a fantastic lecture for people in my position. You know, it was interesting to listen to this engineer. Give a summary of your position compared to someone in ACE mentoring. Over 20 years experience working on all sorts of scales of project, currently working on one that's almost a million square feet of building with a lot of integration of a natatorium, a gymnasium, all of these high-tech classrooms, high-tech auditorium spaces, and all this other stuff. So really engineered heavy kind of buildings. And an ACE mentoring participant is like 17, 16. My particular group, I have four kids because you know, they break it down into, they got a handful of mentors. And so they basically take this big group of kids and then break it down into like one-on-ones. And so I've got four kids. I have a freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior. The senior, she is very interested in architecture. And so she's very interested in staying really active with it. I look over at the screen to my freshman and my freshman's kind of glazing over. He's trying to pay attention. I can only imagine the topics being discussed by an MEP over Zoom to this group of high schoolers, because I think part of the thing here is reading the room, right? Like the, knowing the audience. They were talking about backflow preventers. <laughs> Why? 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 Why are we talking about backflow preventers with a freshman in high school? This is the same reason we don't talk about business and we don't talk about so many things in architecture school. We don't talk about specifications, right? Because you want those students to come back. And this is your comment, right? This is about engineering birth control. You're witnessing Look, engineering oh, yeah. birth control happen in real oh, totally. time. Look, <laughs> I have a freshman that lives in my house and there's a lot of times where I'll just go off on some tangent and start talking about things that I was dealing with during the day and all this other stuff. And I'll look over at my daughter and I'll see her glazing over and I'll acknowledge it. I'll say, thanks for listening to me. I know you're not paying attention. I know you don't care what I'm saying. I know you have no idea what I'm saying, but at least just thank you for being here. And I can like use you as a sounding board. It's a little bit easier when I'm sitting there talking to my wife because more and more it is 
an interesting parallel between the trials and tribulations of a classroom school teacher and the trials and tribulations of an architect. We'll save that for another conversation as well, but oh my Lord, so many parallels there. But we've had all of these different lectures and they are interesting information and experience packed lectures. And there are some where I've been delightfully impressed with how they were paying attention, at least regurgitating the information that they heard and they wrote down. Not that they understand what it all meant, but when you're talking through like mechanical systems and you're showing chart on how you size mechanical equipment, again, freshman in high school, oh, really? Nice. Why are we showing this? What we used to do is a lot of times we wouldn't have engineers as some of our mentors. And so we had to do it ourselves. So sometimes we take turns, me and this other guy that were kind of running the program, we would take turns and say, okay, you're going to give the structures lecture. I'll give the mechanical lecture and you'll give the sustainability lecture. But we would always break it down to almost the rudimentary thing. We started the whole thing off and just basically broke down all of the different architecture and engineering components and likened it to the human body and broke it down like the facade and the architecture of the skin and all of that other stuff. And then the structure, the skeletal system, and then all of the plumbing, piping in the air, like your lungs and your circulatory system and all of this other stuff. And we broke it down in a way that they could understand because they've had basic biology classes and things like that. And they understand certain aspects of like, when you take a deep breath and it goes into your lungs and the lungs process it and push it through your system and all that other stuff. We associate it back to that. And they're like, oh, I get it. I understand the mechanical system of a building is very similar to the human body. This is how we got them to understand just the basics of all of these different engineering principles. We didn't want to or need to. Now, I'm going to throw a big, huge disclaimer in there. There's a big difference between the ACE Baltimore program and the ACE Detroit. Where am I at? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Detroit, where these kids actually earn college credits, which mm -hmm. is amazing. I absolutely yeah. love that idea. And so after they've gone through a couple of years of this and completed it, they can earn, I'm not sure up to however, but I think you can at least earn three during this process. So it's a good deal for them, right? Yeah, right. So I can understand why it's a little bit more rigorous than ours was. We basically gave them the opportunity. One, we gave them experience. Two, we gave them a resume padding or resume builder for things. We gave them good experience when it came to things like presentations and stuff like that. And the seniors would always be able to compete for and potentially earn scholarships. Hmm. So a little trade-off here and there. One earns college credits, one earns a scholarship. But yeah, I was so baffled at why it was so, it was literally geared towards if you had a lunch and learn by a mechanical engineer who came in and they were wanting to talk to you about partnering up with them. And they would go through like their vast experience and their team formations. And like, if we're looking for high performance buildings and we want to hire the right engineer, they'll come in and they'll talk about all sorts of metrics to get to a high performance building. Mm -hmm. What they can add to the project to make it even better, right? Exactly. And those are the things that we would expect them to come into our office filled with architectural professionals wanting to hear a lot of mumbo jumbo about mechanical engineering. It's the dog and pony show. That's what they used to call it, at least. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Not a freshman in high school. Well, and not about duct sizing. <laughs> and not about duct sizing. 
not about the minutia of the job, but what makes a healthy building? How is a building like a human being? These are kind of living, breathing things. There's so many opportunities there. We would always begin each of those sections of instruction. We would always use those as a way to basically say, okay, as an architect, your schooling can range from a four-year degree that then transitions into a two-year master's. We basically explain to them what an architect does, but then also what's the schooling behind becoming an architect. How to get there. Exactly. And then what it means to get your license and all that other stuff. All of that, because I don't know about you, but you don't become an architect overnight right after you graduate college. Although now it's becoming a little bit more prevalent that there is those paths. But when we were doing this, you were probably like at year six, year seven, when you were starting to get licensed, right? Mm -hmm. But people don't know these things and aren't really ever told those things. It's just like the army recruiter. If they would have told me all of the different things that I would have been doing when I was in the army, would I have done it? We can argue yes, no, or whatever, but wouldn't it be good if you just had the information about what you're actually going to be doing before you actually do it so you can understand the commitment that it takes? Because there's a lot of people who graduate from architecture school that I've seen leave the profession because they never really understood the level of commitment that it takes to be an architect. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to that whole suffer fest that we were talking about. Nobody really understands if we were truthful about, okay, this is what you're going to do. How many people would actually go through that process of doing it? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not trying to be mean about it. I'm not trying to like say, do you have what it takes to be an architect? It's more of, do you have the truth of what it is like to be an architect? All of the different phases of your experience as you move through and become, I hate to say it, ready for retirement, But if you think about this, think about your progress through the profession. You went from like drafting and research and things like that of different building materials or spec items or things like that. And then you slowly started to gain more and more experience and you started to transition out of certain things that you don't have to do anymore because now somebody else is going to be doing those. You're going to be doing higher, more responsibility, Mm -hmm. more experience level. And then you're going to just keep doing that more and more. I remember when I was moving into the more project management role of things and they're like, I hate to say it, man, but you're going to be doing a lot less drawing. That was a lie, but you know. (laughs) You should be doing a lot less drawing. I should be doing a lot less drawing. But when they say you're going to be doing a lot less drawing, like, okay, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to let go. I just want to say like that you asked the question, if they were honest, would people do it? If everybody had all the information. And I think that is something that architecture has to deal with because I think you're right. I think a lot of people wouldn't do it if they knew what the commitment actually was. And it's not like there's one story either. There's not just one story of what it takes to become an architect. It's different for a lot of different people. Oh, yeah. The other thing that I want to add to that is that Jody, you know, Coffee with an Architect on Twitter posted a tweet the other day. It said, Buddy Jody Brown. Yeah, Jody Brown. He said, What's a, I'm trying to think of exactly how he stated it, but I just can't pull it up. But it's like, What's a good memory from when you were a young architect? And my response was like, So, like under 50, what do we consider a young architect? Because it does take so long to right. do all these things. Like you said, you don't even really start to think about licensure. This is averages and generalities, right? But it's like seven years. I didn't get licensed for 17 right. years after I graduated. Oh, yeah. 
And so we know that was my journey. It's not everybody's journey, but right. it takes a long time to become an architect. Would people sign up to become an architect if they knew that? I'm not so sure they would. You know, like right. you're going to well, get low pay. You're going to work long hours. And you're serving humanity, by the way. You're right. protecting the health, safety, and welfare of the general public with the projects right. you work on. There is so much going on, and there's so much good, and there's so much bad. And I don't know like what that marketing pitch is without a bunch of spin. So going back to how we opened the show, talking about the stresses of the profession and how it paralleled the stresses of moving and stuff and how basically the profession helped us be able to navigate the stresses of that. If you think about that, we call it suffering, we can call it experience, we can call it whatever we want to call it. But that path of gaining all of that knowledge, there are so many different facets to it that most people, when they get into architecture from the jump, usually think, hey, I'm going to be a designer of buildings. And yes, that is absolutely true. You will be a designer of buildings. But that is such a small part of what the day-to-day -day life of an architect really is that some people just don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. I mean, that is totally okay. Well, and you don't want people there who don't want to do that. You mentioned earlier, there are people who left a profession when they figured out it wasn't what their hopes and dreams were made of. That was the right choice for them, right? And it totally was. There's this kid that I keep thinking about. I think about him often. We were sitting around and he was just like, hey, Cormac, can I talk to you out in the hallway? So we were in a particular building. We were in kind of like a suite and there was no quiet place for us in the office. So we went out and we just walked around down to the lobby and we were sitting there talking. He was just like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. He goes, it's just not in my heart to do this. And I looked at him and I'm like, if it's not in your heart, don't put yourself through this. There is so much. <laughs> You're like, high five. To have the self-awareness. Yeah. Because one of his passions was running. You know, he was cross-country runner and all of this other stuff. And he was on his way to becoming an elite runner, an elite class runner. And he is an elite class runner. He did a half marathon in like one hour and five minutes. What? Exactly. I don't know anything about marathons, but I know that that's ridiculous. Looking at his numbers, when he set his personal record, that was on par with what people were qualifying for the Olympics. That's how good it was. And he's still that good. But now he's like a track coach and he's a professional trainer and all of this other stuff. And that was where his passion was. His passion wasn't coming in every day doing drafting work and getting yelled at by a PM who was a disgruntled PM <laughs> and all of this other stuff. And he went through all of this architecture school and he was taking tests. He completed all of his hours and everything. It was sent down for his AREs, taking the test. And he was just like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think mm. I want to do this. Mm. I don't think I have it in me to put myself through this for the rest of my life. Yeah, it's hard to say. And he made that choice. But the question is, would he put himself through all of that for him was torture if he was told the truth about what architects really do? I always also get back to another experience of this one girl fresh out of school. One of my things that I love to do is take new grads and take them out onto the job site so that they can kind of understand and see this is what you're drawing. You're not drawing just for paper's sake. You're not drawing to look at a pretty picture on your computer screen. You're actually drawing a building. You don't see it now, but you will see it later. And you need to understand like that line means that beam and all these other things. You need to understand that because that to me 
establishes a level of care that hopefully you will continue to develop in your career. And as we were leaving, we had spent the entire day out on the job site. And you know, we went through the OAC meetings, the owner architect contractor meetings. We went to the job site. We did some pay application reviews. We did all of these different things. And I just wanted her to see all of the different things that you have to deal with. Once the drawing is done, the job isn't done. And I wanted her to see all of these things. As we're leaving the site, she's exhausted. I'm exhausted. She's like, I had no idea architecture was more management than anything else. I'm like, exactly. Now, she is a licensed architect, but she does not work for an architect. She actually works for a construction management company. As of now, she actually left the architecture profession, still trying to make a decision whether or not she wanted to go and finish up her master's degree in architecture which she ended up doing and she ended up getting her license, but she still works for the same company that she left architecture for as a construction manager. And now she's a, probably a senior PM now, but it is really interesting that she saw all of the management, but she also saw both sides of things and she wasn't necessarily in it for, let me go design the buildings and stuff. She was more on the technical side or the construction side of things. And so she found a pathway for her in architecture mm -hmm. that was architecture adjacent or is still, yeah, I would say architect adjacent. But it was, again, interesting that would she have gone through the path of architecture school if she knew where she was going to end up? Or would she have gone to get a degree in construction management or something like that? So that always leads me back to, are we doing our future profession a disservice by not framing school closer to the profession. And I understand like the, what the process of what they teach in school is, critical thinking and all that, that other stuff. But professional practice and construction management, construction administration, all of those things that are part of our day-to-day -day life, they're so blushed over that we don't really understand like the correlation between what we're taught in school about the other 70% of our job we're only taught that 30% of designing a building, detailing that building, getting a construction set out, then what? Do it again. We just keep doing that over and over again. Mm -hmm. There's so much more. And a lot of people, when they look at that and they say, mm, I don't really want to do that. And then you'll start to see people within the profession start to compartmentalize themselves. It's just like, I just want to be a technical architect. I don't want to be. That's what school trains people to do though. Right there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. One of three things, a designer, a manager, or a technical, and you are right. going to be a cog in some other big machine. Exactly. There's so much to talk about there. We probably shouldn't get into it now, but I agree. The question is, are we doing a disservice? Because it yeah. does take a certain kind of person to become an architect. And there's a lot of different things you can do in architecture. Yep. And if yep. we're honest about it, I'm not sure what that would look like because it's a hard story to tell. There's not a perceived value in the general public. So there's a misunderstanding automatically for the most part. And that marketing campaign should be being done by the American Institute of Architects. And it kind of is sometimes. I mean, we see those videos that they show them at the AIA conferences yeah. about how they're reaching out to the general public. But how does that integrate with school? How does that integrate with placement? There's so many pieces and layers to that onion that's really complex. And so honestly, that's why I get involved with ACE. And I honestly feel like if more and more of the profession, of all of the different professions, architecture, engineering, and construction would get involved with ACE, 
we would actually start to develop the future of people who really, truly want to be there. Yeah, in your community, right? That's as far as you really need to go, is you need to do that in your community. Right. So the kids that I'm sitting around with and we're talking, I will generally say that of three out of four, I'm not quite sure how the freshman, he's very quiet. He sits back a little bit. He doesn't say much, only because he's a freshman and he's just kind of learning how to interact with more adult type people and stuff and figure things out because he's not even sure he wants to pursue this kind of career. He's just interested, which is fine. That's essentially what this whole thing's about. We shouldn't expect anybody to know at that age. You can actually start to see the kids who really truly have a true interest in pursuing one of these disciplines. And so I definitely say the senior that I have, she's she's ready to go to architecture school. She's been preparing herself. She's been doing some summer experience taking certain classes and stuff, the way that she basically has been kind of like leading the team from the student's aspect, leading the team and really showing thoughtfulness, like the critical thinking that we really want to have uh, teaching our students. She possesses that. And so you can see if she's going to be great for our profession. She's going to be great in this profession. If this is what she really wants to do, she's going to be good at it. It's totally awesome that there's this ability or this avenue for kids, legit kids, to yeah. prototype this kind of career without high consequences. Obviously, there's oh, a yeah, commitment. Yeah. There's not no commitment here. They are trying to meet some requirements so that they get opportunities. This takes me to an exercise that I went through. There's a book you can get off of Amazon. It's a class at Stanford called Designing Your Life. And <laughs> one of the big messages in that book is come up with some options and then prototype them. Find people who work in those, interview the heck out of them to understand what it's really like to be that. And you want multiple people in each avenue. So you, in an architecture, you're not going to get the same three stories. You're going to get three very different stories. And that starts to paint the picture of what it's like to become an architect. That sounds exactly like what ACE Mentoring is. It really is. And it's a good program because, again, it's like one of these things. It's practitioners sitting down with these students going through a mock project, but also just imparting a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of wisdom. Hell, yesterday, we're actually like doing some drafting in Revit. And one of the kids, my junior, he's the one who wanted to take on doing a lot of the Revit work. I'm like, great, that's fine. And so he's drawing and I'm walking him through the, the menu of how to draw simple things like walls and all this other stuff. And then maybe this is a little too like nitpicky, but He's like, okay, so let's draw some doors. And he like show them how to place the doors and show them how to like just toggle through and change the swing or the direction and all that other stuff. And so he places the doors. I'm like, okay, now select that door. You see that dimension right there? We can adjust that dimension. And I literally was having him dimension how far off of the hinge side, how far off of the wall that edge of the door needs to be. Mm -hmm. And then I went through this whole tangent of, and the reason that we set at least a minimum distance is because, and I went through and I was explaining to him, I was like, think about if you had this door pushed all the way up against the wall and you were trying to move some furniture into that and it was 42 inch clear opening through that door and you had a 40 inch piece of furniture or equipment or something that you were moving in there because that door can't open all the way up and out of the way of the door frame, you would have to take the door off of the frame to get that equipment through there. And I'm 
putting him like scenarios that they would like, oh yeah, I remember when they were moving my bedroom furniture in there that they had to take the door off of the frame to get all my furniture in. And I was like, see, and that's why we design the things the way that we do. We have to think about the way people are going to live, not just, oh, I need a door there, but okay, now the door's there. How do you think they're going to use the door? Yes, they're going to go in and out, but they're going to take stuff in and out too. But just Mm -hmm. to explain to them the little nuances and stuff of all of this other stuff. I don't remember any of those conversations being had with me in school. Right. Why do we do the things that we do? I'm sending you a virtual backpack right now. I I talked about the (laughs) backpatting machine earlier, giving you the, pushing the buttons to send you the backpatting machine right now. Good job, Cormac. As we were walking out, I was just like, hey, how far off of the, the wall would you set a door? And they're just like, varies on the type of wall. This is their exact answer. It's like, it varies on the type of wall that you're using and stuff. Anywhere from like four to eight inches. If it's a masonry wall, and I'm just like, I'm rolling a tear right now. <laughs> I connected. It was the difference between having that engineered-based conversation that everything was talked over their head to the reason we placed the door here and then relating it back to things that they have done in their life. Have you ever moved anything in and out of a door? Right. Okay. The reason why you would put the door there is because now you can open it up all the way out of the way. You have that clear opening and you can get your furniture in and out of there without having to take the door off the hinge. So they're just like, oh, well, that makes sense. And now they'll never forget it. If they ever go through architecture school and they go into the profession, every single one of them will at least know how to properly place a door. You're passionate about this. I can hear you hitting the table. I am. (laughs) This whole program, what you're doing, it's awesome stuff, man. It's fantastic. I love it. I don't see myself stopping. It takes a commitment sometimes. I've got to commute out to the Western suburbs. And when I was doing it in Baltimore, I was an hour and a half away from my house after work. And I would drive an hour and a half out of my way. And then it would basically be about two hour drive back home. And I was just like, it's okay because I like doing this. I like to talk to kids who are interested in our profession about our profession. Are you really interested in it? And if you are, here's the truths. Can't hide from those. Well, so there was a kid in um, one of my years who he was really interested and he kind of took on the role of the contractor and they had to do things like a schedule of your uh, construction schedule. And they also had to do a basic budget, real simple stuff. And most of it was based sort of on some experience that was explained to them from the contractor mentors and things like that. And so he was really thinking about either going into engineering or construction. And I heard back from him about a year after his graduation. And he was like, oh, Mr. Cormick, I just wanted to tell you that I just finished my first year in carpentry school. I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. He's like, yeah, I know that all of the different things that you were telling me about the profession and you were talking up architecture and the contractor, they were talking up contracting and stuff. And he goes, I personally like the hands-on work. And I understand that a lot of contracting, like construction management and stuff is more paperwork. He goes, I want to swing a hammer. I want to cut something. So that's what the kid's doing. He's a carpenter. Cool. And you know what? He loves it. Kind of like, that's it. If you're exposed to something, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to spend the next five years getting a degree to doing this. And then you realize, oh, crap, I don't want to do that. You just wasted a lot of money, hit a lot of time. 
right. doing something that you now have to go and do something else. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good to hear your voice again. <laughs> and yours too. A whole hour of it. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's good to be back. It is. And looking forward to the coming season, talking about a little bit more. There is one thing that you had sent me an email and then I just started watching the storm of comments and thoughts and responses about a interesting little end car policy that was mm-hmm. recently removed that I'd like to talk about a little bit later. Okay, let's do that. Another episode cliffhanger right there. There you go. All right, Cormac, talk to you soon. All right, see you, everybody. <laughs>